0: This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime, and PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the handle The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name and you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening, and thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. We were supposed to speak, I think, exactly a week ago, and then Mm. our episode got delayed by one week, but... I think it's a blessing in disguise, because your piece, All Fall Down, was released just last week, and I wouldn't have been able to maybe, you know, tackle these five pillars with you after the recording ended. So I'm really lucky that it came out just days after we were supposed to record, and here we are. Mm. And the reason I'm bringing this up from the beginning is because uh, I think it's, it's, um, it's easy to get sort of distracted by the minute details that are happening today, day by day, and it's always healthy to step back, look at the larger picture, what kept Lebanon standing after the Civil War ended, and what's happening in perspective. So I mm-hmm. highly recommend anyone listening or watching to check out this article, and I'll, I'll link it to the episode. But before we jump into that sort of heavy terrain, I want to ask you, Maham, um, just your your day-to-day life at the moment in Beirut. And I mean it in the widest terms, your work routine with the electricity cutouts, (laughs) COVID-19 cases on the rise, and maybe to a degree you're still sort of you're trying to have a social life once again after having been locked down for a long time. Um, The pain and agony that we're all seeing, these sort of video clips that go viral of petty theft, petty crime, and then of course the severe hunger, the distress, the agony. That's sort of visible throughout the country and it's a very big and very maybe depressing topic to start with (laughs) but I'm curious just your own your own immediate experience given what we're seeing right now in Beirut and whether or not your day-to-day life has actually altered that much given the stresses given the pain whether or not you're able to still have a fairly normal routine in a very abnormal environment
1: Hi, Ronnie. It's great to be with you on this podcast. Life in Beirut these days, I would say, I mean, for the longest time for me, life in Beirut, before the collapse, before the COVID-19, life in Beirut has been like a pressure, living in a pressure cooker. Mm. And um, the pressure just keeps increasing. And this has been going on, I would say, since 2005, particularly after the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafi hariri if I may go back that yeah. far. Mm-hmm. Um, it was followed with a spate of assassinations, uh, starting with uh, a dear friend, Samir Asir, uh, and then it kind of just went downhill from there. Um, fast forward to 2020. This is the centennial of Lebanon. Lebanon is this year exactly 100 years old. And I feel like we're, you know, the 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 uh, analogy of the, the metaphor of the frog or the lobster yeah,
2: that's in hot
1: water. Yeah. And you keep increasing the heat and it's dying, but it doesn't realize it's dying. It's just adjusting to the heat. For the last, since 2005, mm. we've literally been living in... Uh, We've been adjusting to a rapidly deteriorating situation on multiple fronts: on the security, on you know financial, etc. It's all come down to a head right now. Yeah. The economic and financial collapse, coupled with COVID-19, have made what seemed to be an impossible situation back in uh, January or in October, when the protests started, seem even more impossible today. My day to day routine, there's nothing normal about it. You try and maintain a, uh, you try and maintain. I'm working, we're still working from home. We took a decision not to uh, go back to the offices. Mm. I did not Mm. want to take the risk of having any one of my colleagues be in a situation. I mean, we can do our work from home, we have that luxury. So there's no need for us to be back in the office and in that way, particularly now that the infection rate is going up. Right. Um, so you try and maintain some sort of normalcy of you do your work, see family, socially, the network is still very, very, you know, the, the social bubble I personally move in is quite limited,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: mainly out of concern for my own family, particularly my mother, so there's nothing normal about it. Um, Yes, people are resuming some sort of, uh, you know, Lebanon, in Beirut is incredibly sociable.
2: Yeah.
1: We're out every night, uh, almost, uh, and there's always something going on. There's a concert, there's a show, there's a dinner, uh, drinks with friends, it doesn't matter, there's always something going on. Yeah. This is all evaporated. The summertime is usually when all the big musical festivals are happening. Bassidine, Balbak, biblos uh, etc. None of that is happening this year. Yeah. Um, so this is the period when all everybody comes from abroad to visit their friends and family. so people you haven't seen for a year all of a sudden show up on your doorstep. That's right. not happening either. I mean, some are arriving, but you really don't want them to shop on your doorstep <laughs> unless, unless they finish their fourteen year, fourteen day, sorry, quarantine. For, for, oh, that would be impressive. Fourteen years. <laughs> fourteen years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's nothing normal about our lives. You, we, we go on with daily routines. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go to the market, you eat, you breathe, you do the things you need to do. I've taken up some gardening, which is not nice. oh, fun. Oh, really. Oh. No, yeah. but, oh, that's
0: interesting. And that's
1: you're, my balcony, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, it's I. Mm, these are images I've seen, and I've sort of heard people discussing gardening. So you're the first person I've spoken to who's literally done this during the COVID experience gardening. So yeah, I,
1: I've, always, I've always it's something I always liked. And oh, so I see. I okay. Because, since I'm already I'm here, uh, right. My my job requires me to travel. Mm-hmm. This is a period where I'm grounded in Beirut. It's right. fun. It's nice. I like it. I'm yeah. enjoying it, and to a certain extent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get carried away. Sure. So let me indulge in this, uh, in this, uh, you know, hobby, if you like. And it's been fun. It's been fun, but now I'm realizing, what have I done to myself? I actually have to take care of these things. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, in a way, they're like children. You have to t- you have to tend to them and make sure they live and grow up properly. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I start
1: understanding.
0: <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm glad you you've actually, I mean, so before we started recording, we had a very nice exchange about many things that resonate with you and they resonate with me. And I'm glad that in this conversation, you've already brought up many things that I think are critical. And I'm, I'm glad that you referenced 2005. In many conversations, I've had the dates and you were hesitating on going back that far behind. Most of the time it goes back to 1990 or it goes back to 1975 yeah. or for that matter, 58 or 43 or on occasion, Ottoman era. I mean, it goes back as far back as you want. I'm glad you've actually, in a way, you honed in on a moment that is not that far back in time and I think still resonates today. Maybe it is, it's changed to a point, and maybe the issues have evolved to a point, but I think that's a healthy sort of a marker. And you mentioned Samir Asir, without sort of any hesitation, you bring him up. I, I think of him as a, as a part of the October uprising, even though he's not with us, but I can, I can sort of imagine that he would be fully on board with this moment as well. So there's that kind of, there's a linkage there. And of course, you also described that everything went downhill since then, not just in terms of repeated assassinations, but the political evolution of Lebanon following the Syrian withdrawal has not been a very uh, good sort of story. Many things have sort of uh, devolved into where we are today. But again, I, I like that that's the marker that we're sort of starting with, because I also think this sort of, this flows naturally into the piece you wrote not that long ago, a few days ago, in Carnegie, in UN. Now, you mentioned four pillars that have collapsed, and the fifth one is wobbling, but you also leave the fifth one as sort of wobbling, that it's not standing properly. So in a way, it's, the, it's both. It's the post-war order, and it's also the post-Syrian withdrawal order that are coming to an end. I want to start off by just touching on the first one, because I think that feeds in nicely to where what we were just uh, discussing. It's the first pillar. It's the Ta'if Accord. Now, I am old enough now to have lived through the entire Ta'if experience. I mean, I grew up in a primarily post-war environment. I saw everything that Ta'if was supposed to be and never was. I saw all of its failings. I think everyone that lived in Lebanon in the 1990s, up until 2005, uh, saw maybe, unfortunately, the worst aspects of Ta'if. And I'm glad that you sort of, you hone in on one thing in particular. I'm going to quote you to you here. The (laughs) Ta'if Accord, which I love doing, by the way, I love taking advantage of these moments. The Ta'if Accord, the settlement ending that conflict, foresaw Lebanon's transition to a civil state in which sectarian representation in parliament would end. In exchange, all sects would be represented in a new Senate, whose authority would be limited to deciding on major national issues. Yet those parts of the accord were never implemented. Today, sectarian governance has become far more entrenched in state institutions, making change extremely difficult. When I read that, I can almost look back in time to what people were trying to do right now back then. And even that issue of the Senate Is now 30 years old and it seems still like a distant dream and that the sectarianism that many of us talk about every day is more entrenched today than it was in 1989 so let let's start with there that sort of the end of the ta'if accord and maybe also the the reasons it's ending may actually be what it was supposed to do and never did and we can talk about civil state and Senate and all of the above but in your in your mind Is Ta'if right now irreparable, that we need something brand new? Or is it something that was never really implemented to begin with, that we never gave it its due chance, that we're still living in that sort of 1989 zone, where Ta'if never became, in a way, a new republic? It just ended the civil war, it ended the gunshots, but it left a paralyzed state intact
1: um okay you've brought up quite a few points um let me start with why i talk about 2005 Mm -hmm. why i turned there and not in 1990 and then i'll go into 12 sure yeah uh for me 2005 was a um a transitional period it was a transitional year for Lebanon. it's marked the beginning of something different and something new. It mm. ended the nineteen ninety to two thousand and five was one period in the post-war era. Mm. Two thousand
2: and
1: five with the assassination of Prime Minister Haviri, the uh, you know the, the the Syrian forces leaving Lebanon yeah. under popular pressure and international pressure, and the sense of euphoria of we're at at the cusp of actually. Building Lebanon, the Lebanon we want again. And there were many lessons there, mm. many lessons about what does a transition mean and how does one go about it and is a transition possible with the a political leadership that is not only entrenched in state institutions, but is also the legacy of that civil war.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. So to answer your question, for me, the problem is not Taif per se. Hmm. The Ta'if Accord, if one were to take it at face value, it was about uh, shifting uh, the balance of power or the power sharing of modus operandi from being an equitable, an equal one between the Christians and Muslims. The Ta'if Accord said we are not going to look at demography at the demographic balance of the different sectarian communities. We're not going to take that into account. We're just going to go and say, so it's not about the weight of the population that will determine representation. We're just going to say we want equal power sharing for everyone. And the idea was that you're supposed to move to a civic state by creating the Senate so that religious groups, uh, particularly minorities, don't forget, Lebanon is a state that recognizes 18 different religious sects. This is unique. Yeah. And it's, it's for me, it's a public good and it's a regional public good in that sense. So the idea of the Senate was that it would be a place where the leadership of the religious groups uh, would have a say in matters of national concern. Right. Um, and where minorities... Especially, you know, I, I usually don't use this term. I don't like it. But let's say smaller groups mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, feel that they have a say and that their own interests are being protected. Right. Don't forget that the civil war was one where you had it was. I mean, there was a lot of identity. Uh, I mean, polarization on the basis of identity during the civil war. So the sense of being afraid of each other was very much still part and parcel of the social makeup of this country. Right. So to my mind the challenge that Ta'if was never implemented as such. Let's not forget, and as, and again the, the question in my mind how did they even think it was going to be implemented in nineteen ninety? When the political settlement that basically was cemented in Ta'if was about Ending the conflict on the street and moving it to institutions. What you did was you right. took the heads of the militias and you simply moved them to state institutions and basically said, "This is your war booty. This is your war bounty." Sorry. Yeah. You know, here you are.
2: Yeah.
1: And that's what they did. They took over specific institutions uh, and treated them as you know extensions of their own fiefdoms. Uh, oh. This is at a time when the presence of the Syrian uh, army, but also Syrian political influence, yes. was enormous. Um, so any possible reform uh, that could have been implemented at that time was also complicated considerably by their influence. So, let, so even t- if there was an interest, mm-hmm. it just wasn't happening. But let me, I'm,
0: I'm curious. So, in that sense, with that 15 year delay, is two thousand five therefore the beginning of trying to implement Ta'if without that kind of pressure? In other words, the Syrian army necessarily not necessarily no no, no not okay. necessarily. Okay. Yeah.
1: I think I think in two thousand and five, um, the you know what you saw on the street... Mm. 2005 represents a couple of things for me. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it was about, again, I I apologize for the use of those terms, but it was about the Sunni community coming in and saying, Lebanon first. Mm. So finally accepting or admitting uh, to a you know, to a Lebanese polity as such. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to go back in time, uh, if you recall when Lebanon was established, um, until the 50s and 60s, you had some of the key elites within the Sunni community who still would say, I'm from uh, the, you know, Lebanon, Syria, or yeah. Beirut, Syria. So S- some of my favorite I-
0: postcards of Beirut say Beirut, Syria. And that's not that long ago. Exactly. Yeah,
1: it's not that long. So there was a resistance to this entity that was called Lebanon. This was the period of Arab nationalism. Um, So the sense that you're you're you know you're in Lebanon, but you're part of something much larger than you know Mount Lebanon. Right. So 2005 was the end of that, and it was the beginning of a Lebanon first uh, kind of. A uh, 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 sentiment, right? Uh, many, many see it as the moment of the Christians and Sunnis coming together, mm, which kind mm, of left mm. left the first component uh, out in the, you know, out in the <laughs> outside the, uh, which is the Shias mainly. Yeah. But so, in that sense, that's one thing about two thousand. The second thing was the sense of it is possible, things are possible. It's possible to push the Syrian army out, it's possible to actually start working towards a civic state. I remember during that period, the positive energy, the amazing energy I saw on the streets was just remarkable. Um, the amount of uh, talks I was being invited, the amount of initiatives that were being launched about how to move to a civic state, how to move towards a secular state, and, and not just in Beirut, this was a Across the country, across everywhere. Yeah, this was the period. So there was this sense of euphoria, but mm, then
2: mm.
1: political leadership takes a, you know, comes out takes a look at the all of a sudden thousands of people thronging to the streets. I mean, I remember the the night that uh, the, the night, the second night after Prime Minister Hariri was killed. Mm, mm. Um, this thing, I mean, it's important to kind of recall this. Thousands of people took to the streets spontaneously. Yes. This was the first time we were seeing this in Lebanon where people were just going to the streets to protest. The assassination of a Prime Minister, many of whom actually were not necessarily in agreement with. Right. But the sense of uh, of injury of who are you to assassinate our own Prime Minister, you know. Right. So the people were throwing to the streets on their own without any push from the political leadership. And in this instance, the Lebanese were way ahead of their own political leadership. Hmm. And I, I, mean, I, I recall distinctly, um, you know, seeing some of the uh, associates of this leadership, calling them up and saying, come see what's happening. Yeah. Literally, second night, come see what's happening. That's the time when, uh, you know, many of our friends, Went to the streets. They started organizing, and then it kind of took a more formal, uh, uh, if you want, initiative or became a more formal effort.
0: But l- let me ask you then: is oh, and I'm I'm only sort of I, I want to maybe pick your brain on that sort of dilemma of a civil war ending with a template on how to move the state forward, and then you also have in a way a population that's demanding better. They're holding. They're trying to hold a the Syrian regime to account by asking the Syrian or demanding the Syrian withdrawal and pointing the finger at that regime for Hadid's assassination. So there's that kind of upswell of d- d- sort of demands for justice and accountability. But that doesn't necessarily translate with what Ta'if set out for. In other words, um, and I hope I got this right, that You have communities maybe seeing eye to eye on certain things, but it's not necessarily the beginnings of what Ta'if want, what Ta'if set itself up for, which is a Senate, a civil state, the sort of removal of sectarianism, that that's still sort of, that's a distant uh, goal.
1: It was an aspiration. Just Taif an aspiration. it remains, to my mind, an aspiration right. of where people wanted to take Lebanon. Mm. So today, when people say, "You know, we don't want Taif anymore," I, I just think, "Well, it was never implemented." Right, and right. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't forget, the end of the war, the war ended in a political settlement, yep. which had. This was at the time of the first Gulf War. Mm. There was the Pax Syriana. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, there was agreement, both international and regional. Let's just end this uh, conflict. Syria uh, would take control. Iran, Hezbollah, Iran was pacified by yeah. allowing Hezbollah to maintain in a uh, kind of consensus that somehow you would have, I think it was Walid Jumblat who once said, you would have a Hong Kong Style, you know, development and tourism and growth and all of this in one part of Lebanon and you would have a mukawami, a resistance yeah. in another part of Lebanon and that somehow these could coexist and they did coexist. They did yeah. cohabit for a very long time. Right. Uneasily, uh, with a lot of tension uh, but they did coexist for quite yeah. some time. Uh, so, I so, think that formula is is, is is no longer feasible. Right, um, right. If I can just say one thing, to me, the struggle since 2005 has really been it initially started about how to move towards the civic state, how to try and uh, and move towards the implementation even of Taif, if you like, how to uh, deepen uh, Lebanon's democratic experience. Yeah. But then, as time passed, with the resistance of the political elite to any kind of change, And the fact that you no longer had an external arbitrator in the way Syria was operating uh, meant and then you had new actors entering into the scene, the levels of clientelism, nepotism, the control they had over, they they gained over state institutions became a lot worse. So rather than trying to deepen Lebanon's democratic experience, we ended up, in a situation where we're trying to preserve what was left of our democratic institutions.
0: Exactly. When you
1: go for two years without a president, when you go for you know, uh, a month on end, seven, eight months without a government, simply because you know, there has to be one particular minister in that government. It's just mind-boggling.
0: But but I'm curious about that. Okay, so... this is
1: partly, sorry, this is just partly also, let's not forget, I mean, the other kind of uh, landmark here was 2008 and the Doha Accord. Right. Because for me also the Doha Accord kind of felt the beginning of the end of the capacity of the Taif Agreement to function. What I say in my mm. piece mm. is not that the Taif Agreement has come to an end, but that its capacity, the power sharing agreement um, that was supposed to be, you know, implemented via Taif. Has not come to an end. It's not collapsing, but it is completely uh, stuck. It's no longer able to reproduce itself. It's no longer. It's not able to admit any new players into the game. It's just there's a complete bottleneck, and it just won't move anymore. And this started with two, the The Doha Accords, hmm. where hmm. all of a sudden started talking about these governments of national consensus or national unity governments where everybody is part of government which meant that everybody I mean the, the government since 2008 rarely spoke about spoke about strategic issues it's right. every minister for themselves and everybody has a veto in everybody else's uh, business you can't run a country like this
0: yeah no but I am but that's I mean in a way it's it's offering that the widest perspective which is that on October 17 you suddenly had sort of that kind of euphoria that now things were going to finally improve, that there's going to be a healthy state down the road, there's going to be reform, uh, some level of accountability, some decency and dignity with relationship between the state and citizenry. It almost seems like the aspirations of 1989 were in a a way being addressed by by the population, not by the political elite but by the population, that there was sort of what Ta'if said itself, what it what it was supposed to be, uh, its popular base, if you will, ended up sort of showing up on the streets in October 17. So it's almost like regional settlements brought us Ta'if, regional settlements kept Lebanon sort of wobbling to a point, whether it's Doha or others, and then even today, In a way, it's almost like without a regional settlement, Lebanon is facing its first domestic attempt at trying to do what Ta'if was supposed to do without that kind of regional sort of oversight. It it almost seems like now is the time, if any, for that aspiration to come to life, even if it doesn't work in the end. But...
1: But you see, that depends. I mm. think that what was remarkable about the October 17th movement and continues to be remarkable mm. Mm. are two things. For the first time, again, not for the first time, but we had not seen this number of people come to the street uh, on their own without political. I mean, for the longest time, the complaint was always people will only go to the street when their political leadership demands it. Mm. Here we were, October 17th, 18th, 19th, and it went on. People were coming down in the thousands to the streets yeah. to protest their own leadership.
0: Right, right.
1: The, 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 the depth of the protest within each community was significant.
0: Yes. Yeah. From,
1: you know, and every single one of those communities. Yeah. That, for me, is, was, was, was quite important. The other part was the breadth of the protests across the country. From the beginning, I was saying, don't look at Beirut. Look at what's happening in Tripoli, in Saida, and in Sur. These are the litmus tests, and this tells you how how deep the discontent is across all communities. Lebanese citizens realized they'd been taken for a ride and that this whole sectarian, you know, uh, it's not that they cared any less about their sectarian belonging. It's just the realization that, in fact, Sectarianism has only impoverished them a lot more uh, and created a kind of an equal opportunity uh, uh, abuse for the political leadership. So while all the political leadership benefited from sectarianism, all the Lebanese, irrespective of what sect they belong to, uh, lost lost
0: uh, out. Can I ask you though before we get to the second pillar, and I think this it's mm-hmm. a very important one, I think it's it, maybe it's the it's the one with that l- the longest scope. Do you think today the protesters see a civil state or even for that matter, a Senate that preserves the mosaic that you described earlier, where minor, again, using that word carefully, minorities feel secure within a state that's less sectarian, but that their, their, their survivability is there. It's, it's sort of entrenched that they have their place in a Senate. And that's an idea from 31 years ago. Do you think the average protester today sees that as a goal or is it something that's different today that it's almost like um what was what was supposed to happen in the early 1990s has very little connection to what's happening right now that it's almost like separate separate chapters if you will
1: I think for some protesters that issue still matters and mm-hmm. now as people get more hungry as the political parties are taking advantage of the economic collapse and of COVID-19 to reconnect in a stronger way. They didn't lose that connection, but to reconnect in a stronger way with their own communities through providing, by providing food and medicine and all of this. Um, so the, the, that temptation is, 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 is still uh, pretty much there. Right. However, however, um, I think in response to your question, it really depends who you're talking to. Mm, mm. I think for, And what I see is for a lot of the younger protesters, um, they really don't care. Yeah. They don't see themselves as Sunni or Shia or, 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 or Durzi or Maronite or Orthodox or Catholic or Jewish. They see themselves as a youth that actually wants a shot at at making it and making it in Lebanon without being forced to emigrate uh, for a better opportunity. This is Mm -hmm. what we were hearing all the way Mm -hmm. at the beginning of these protests. And I think this is, again, across the board uh, amongst all communities. So you've got that. I mean, what I find interesting today is I think there's kind of a tug of war between a vision amongst a good cross-section of the protesters who are maybe different in very in, 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 in their in their outlook and in how they see things happening and and their ideological positionings on a spectrum from right to left, on economics, on politics, etc. However, um they agree on looking out or wanting their their aspiration is a civic state. Not necessarily secular, but a civic state. Right. And versus a vision uh, championed mainly by the current political elite, which is to maintain a very heavily entrenched sectarian, uh, you know, power-sharing formula right. that treats you as part of a community and not, not as an individual. So, for many of the protesters, they see themselves as individuals. They don't think. I mean, yes, being part of a religious community is important. But it's not how they define themselves. They see themselves as individuals. They want their rights and responsibilities as citizens of this country and not as members of a community, uh, of a particular community, which is, by the way, the way the, the, the uh, I mean, unfortunately, the, the Lebanese constitution, to some extent, allows the relig- religious communities to mediate their relationship. The relationship of the individual to their state, right. whether through personal status laws, uh, even educational facilities, etc. I mean, there are different ways where the constitution itself, through specific articles, has opened the door for that right. and allows you know you to be treated as a member of a community and not as an individual citizen. I mean, today there aren't the, the you know, let's talk about you know women women are not treated equally in Lebanon. They don't have the same rights. Because when it comes to divorce, when it comes to inheritance, when it comes to child custody, when it comes to a whole bunch of issues related to personal status laws, they have to follow their own religious community. Yes. Um, So custody of a child, and it's not the civic court that decides this. Often it's the religious court. So custody of a child... uh, Will vary depending on which denomination you belong to.
0: So, so in a way, in a so way. I think, oh, sorry. Yes, please.
1: You know, but just that there is this tension, I think, between these two dramatically opposing visions for Lebanon. But it's
0: interesting. It's almost. I mean, if we look back to two markers, the 2005 marker and 1989, that sort of uh, you have many reasons why Lebanon is is sort of stuck in a way. And it's stuck, whether it's from geopolitical concerns or whether it's through what we're seeing right now, sort of massive corruption and this sort of horrible version of what Lebanon is supposed to look like. But at the same time, you have, in a way, in a way, uh, there's an ex- exposure of the what Lebanon really is at the end of the day. And you have a protester on the street that sees himself or herself as a citizen, as an individual citizen that wants to be treated that way that in a way is going back to 1943 whether that protester realizes it or not but that's the foundation of the country and then you have the worst forms of that foundation fighting for survival so in a way taif never really happened it's just sort of an aspiration that never really saw the light of day and what you're yeah, seeing when I'll, right
1: I'll n- take you back further yeah the first the first ministerial declaration of the government of Riyadh Salah in 19 19- 43 i believe. Yeah. If I read out the text, I can try and dig out the text for sure, a second. Yeah. <laughs> it talks about ending sectarianism.
0: You're kidding me. That's the no.
1: first post independence ministerial declaration. Your
0: 1943 jo-
1: that was that was Hold put, on. that's Hold insane. Me, let me let me fish it. Let me fish it out for you yeah. and I will read to you what they say about sectarianism. Yes. Um among the foundations of free form which are required by Lebanon's higher interests is the treatment of sectarianism and the abolition of its negative aspects. The foundation of sectarianism hinders national progress and hurts Lebanon's reputation, not to speak of its poisoning the spirit of relations between various spiritual communities that make up the Lebanese people. We have now seen how, in most cases, sectarianism has been a tool to ensure private interests or sap the strength of national life in Lebanon to the benefit of others. We are confident that when the people are filled by the national sentiment that has arisen under independence and the system of popular rule, they will be reassured and accept the abolishment of the sectarian system, which weakens the nation. I continue. The moment at which sectarianism is abolished will be a blessed moment in the history of Lebanon of comprehensive national awakening. With God's help, we will strive to to see this take place soon. Naturally, its achievement will require preparation on various fronts. We will all cooperate to pave the way and prepare for this, so that all are reassured to the achievement of this critical national reform. What we have said about sectarianism applies also to regionalism, which, if it becomes stronger, will turn a single nation into many. Wow. And amongst the reform that um, this declaration talked about was also amending the electoral reform, organizing national rule, and at- attaining social justice.
0: That's this an incredible my- quote. That that's an incredible statement. So that, yeah. that's the first ministerial statement in Lebanese history. Maha, yes. I, I mean, I know we we sort of we're deep into the first pillar but i I just want to get maybe the a a final thought from you that this is 77 years ago riyadh should be in martyrs square right now protesting if anything (laughs) i mean and 77 years later we're still dreaming that dream just can i get maybe your own your own personal perspective at why This includes all of the messy situations we've been in. This includes civil war. This includes economic crises. This includes everything in modern Lebanese history. Why it remains a perpetual dream. Why it's sort of, even the first prime minister of Lebanon spoke the same language that a protester may sort of, it will resonate with the average protester today. Why it seems to be a perpetual dream. Why something like Ta'if is just an aspiration why things never really take hold where you can transition the Lebanese state into something that, that functions, something that meets the expectations. I, I'm, I'm curious about that. It's almost eight decades of trying. That, that's, the entire, that's the entire Lebanese experience. So, so, I mean, why is 2020 as maybe challenging as 1943, as, as any year where Lebanese have tried to effect change?
1: I think more challenging. 2020 is much more challenging because sectarianism is far far more entrenched in the system today Mm -hmm. than it was in 1943. Lebanon was established as home to different communities. Um, It was initially thought of as a home for the Christians, but it grew to include a number of different communities. Since its birth, it's been seen as a place where pluralism, uh, people from different ethnic and religious backgrounds could could coexist.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: tug of war, to my mind, has been between recognizing individuals as individuals in their own right, as citizens in a state that treats them all equally, and as being members of a community. Uh, members of communities that need to be preserved, that need to be protected, Hmm. uh, that need to be reassured constantly. And unfortunately for the Lebanese today is that the latter has consistently won out. And the reason why it has won out is because um, of the marriage between uh, politics and religion because of the way religious identities or identities in general, but particularly sectarian identities, have been instrumentalized politically to the point where you can't pull the two apart um, in a system like Lebanon. The vested interests in this marriage have been almost impossible to overthrow. This is internally. Now, of course, we're operating also in a region where Lebanon, again, uh because of the nature I mean the way it's constituted many of these communities also have their own international relations uh who get involved in the country yeah. and so I mean we're not going to go into the history sure. of the way geopolitics impacts Lebanon as well mm-hmm. but at least internally for me that that tug of war has always come out in favor of Protecting the community at the expense of individuals.
0: I think it's almost and like.
1: Interestingly. Yeah. Sorry. No, sorry interesting, go ahead. Yes. It's interesting because this does not diminish from the sense of being Lebanese that you hear amongst, you know, the right. Lebanese. Right. Um, we used to joke and say when they're outside of Lebanon, they're gun ho Lebanese. The moment they come back to to Lebanon, uh, everybody becomes not 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 part of their community part of their little neighborhood you know where we're back to being part of some village neighborhood by whatever it is so it's there yeah
0: <laughs> but but I like that analogy of a tug of war and then there are intervals where some at some point there's a pull sort of towards the individual but that it doesn't it's never sort of the for the the appropriate force is not there it's a kind of sort of change it fundamentally, that it's almost like a pull and then a a pull back in the other direction. I I like that sort of, uh, it's almost like um, against all odds, this system seems to win. And whether it's in 1943 or whether it's 2020, it is maybe far more, it is far more entrenched than any of us appreciate. And hence its victory over time.
1: The the vested interests in this system are also huge. I mean, there's a lot of power yes uh you know when you when you instrumentalize identities in this way it gives you a lot of power over yeah. people absolutely today if you ask religious leaders to you know j- just the battle over civil marriage let's talk about the topic which is uh, a big issue in Lebanon just <clears throat> the battle over civil marriage is astonishing the moment you talk about not mandatory, but actually a, an optional, you know, giving people the option of marrying, you know, in civil courts rather than in religious courts in Lebanon. And immediately all the religious leaders say, you know, there will be blood on the street if you even think about it. It turns violent. Yeah. And a lot of it is about losing power. It's about losing power over their constituency. Right. You know, today, today anything you need to do on the personal front, you have to go through your religious community. And that gives them a lot of power to manage people's lives.
0: That, that historic perspective is so important to addressing the foundations of, the, of what needs to be addressed right now. It's almost like it's it's, it's easy to maybe shout at the executive or uh, ask for a prime minister to resign or, or a president to step down or a speaker to leave. But at the end of the day, there are much – the foundations haven't really shaken yet. And I think that's kind of where that well,
1: – you see, this is where I think the the push the the, the changing Lebanon needs a bottom up and a yeah. kind of a push down. Right. This is not. I mean, this system is almost ossified, and it's not going to be easy to change it. The way you want to change it, yes, people are right to ask for, you know, the resignation of all these people. They're right to ask for a government. And I think also we need to distinguish between this and maybe this is a chance to move to the second pillar, Mm -hmm. um, which is the economic crisis that the country is facing. Today, we, do you want to?
0: But yeah, I'm going to quote you to you again. And uh, it's the second pillar. Uh, Lebanon's role as a merchant republic. And again, uh, your words, in a country that imports almost everything it consumes, informed capital controls and the cancellation of lines of credit to businesses show a banking system that no longer functions. Now, I'm going to also go back in time a bit. That's, in a way, my memory of post-war Lebanon, the banking sector growing, and now in hindsight, maybe growing a bit too big, but nonetheless growing. And that confidence that was so unusual where you see Lebanese around the world eager to send their money home. And that kind of uh, assurances that kept these banks alive, kept them functioning. Mm. And then it's only recently, it's only the last few years where things got outrageous, in particular those crazy interest rates that we all know about. But before then, there was a healthy level of confidence, despite many reasons to take your money out. This case in point is the, the events of 2005, the War 2006, the many whatever it was, the events of 2008, the Doha settlement that only temporarily solved those problems, but obviously they were never dealt with. I mean, the assassinations that continued, the Syrian war next door, all the reasons to not have your money in Lebanon, yet Lebanese were confident enough. And the banking sector seemed to be not sound. Not the
1: Lebanese, by the way.
0: You're absolutely right. Not, Not just the Lebanese.
1: In yeah. 2008 financial crisis, money flowed to Lebanon. 2011, uh, the Syrian conflict, money flowed to Lebanon. Whose money came to Lebanon because they had confidence in the banking system. This is the merchant republic. Lebanon was the Switzerland of the East. It's where banking secrecy was held up as uh, upheld as something sacred. So this was the this is the DNA of this country. Its, it's location. And no, I'm, I'm uh, to provide that kind
0: of safe haven. Yeah, but I'm, I'm curious, the durability. And it's
1: also, by the way, other services. Uh,
0: beyond the banking sector, you mean? Beyond, yeah, 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 real
1: estate, tourism, <coughs> I mean, also sure. other sectors. Let's, uh, let's, let's
0: actually include all of them, the banking sector, the services, and, and, and tourism and the like. But that seemed to withstand domestic problems and regional crises. And it's the last few years that things became extremely shaky, and it's really since October that we've seen that the unexpected, that sort of the hyperinflation that we know that we think of in nineteen eighties towards the end of the Civil War, maybe early nineteen nineties, it's now part of life again. So that shocking conclusion, if you will, would you put the onus there on regional issues? Meaning, meaning. Do you think that this pillar is collapsing, simply put, because of the Syrian war? Or, or is it something that was bound to collapse regardless of regional turmoil, that this system, what, this pillar was so shaky at its core that it was just a matter of time? Because I'm, I'm curious that it's really something that seemed to manage itself fairly okay. And then last few years sort of took a nosedive, but then... In 2006, and, and during the financial crisis throughout the world, I mean, the, uh, there we go. The, every episode, every there episode, <laughs> every episode. This is the moment we should celebrate. You, you're still here, but the lights are gone.
1: <laughs> there we okay. go. Here She's we back. Come back again. She's back.
0: <laughs> it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a Lebanese episode about this.
1: That's how you know I'm speaking from Lebanon. I'm in Beirut. And if it doesn't happen,
0: I'm going to ask the guests to turn off their lights and turn it back
1: on. There we go again. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Uh, You know what, Rani? Let me check because sometimes I'm a ticket. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Let me just check that it's the whole building and not just me.
0: Sure. (laughs)
1: We're back. Okay.
0: Hey. There we are. <laughs> hey, awal marra. usually it's one, one in out. Marra it's two. So this is yeah. a, a more special conversation. <laughs> no, that's, it fits the moment. I'm, I'm curious just why that, why the banking sector was, was sound enough. And it's only the last few years. And it's really, really more recent than other, other issues that it kind of took a nosedive. That whether or not it, we can sort of look abroad, in terms of the reasons why this sector suffered immensely, or for that matter, is it something that was bound to collapse regardless of regional turmoil? That this that this pillar was really the, the foundation wasn't in place. Just just your own reflection on on why why it survived earlier crises and why it took a nosedive this time around.
1: Like management you have a system uh, the banking sector has always been one of the, the pillars of Lebanon's economy, historically and until very recently but I think gross management of the system again, the marriage between political and economic gain mm. um, greed you know, the greed of bankers and others a system where there are no checks and balances in place, and when they are there, nobody actually uses them. Uh, right. I, I'll just give one example. In the last maybe 20 years, if not longer, Parliament has not once, not once, called in the governor of the central bank to discuss financial schemes he was putting together, high interest rates he was offering, none of that. None of that. Only recent, I think it was about a few months ago, it yeah. was his first trip to Parliament to respond to questions from the Parliamentarian Subcommittee on, on, uh, on Finance. This is mind-boggling. And this is just one small example. The, the incestuous relationship between politicians, bankers, and others literally created a situation of uh, gross mismanagement. Lebanon was living way above its mean. The central bank was funding uh, state spending, Mm. and i.e. funding politicians uh, de facto, because politicians were using state institutions to enrich and to actually, you know, were using the State coffers yeah. to uh, for their own purposes, whether to enrich themselves personally or to, uh, you know, spend on their own political constituents. Uh, whether it's through hiring, uh, you know, hmm. levies on. <laughs> on but, whatever these being put together,
0: but with that severe mismanagement, and it's good to remember that. I mean, I, it's easy, it's easy to forget. Yeah, two decades he's not called in, so there's almost like a like a shielding of. of uh,
1: but it got almost, worse, Ronnie. It got worse. So mm, there was mm. severe mismanagement, but then the the. Um, The, you know, okay, you start off with the countries acquiring a bit of debt and it, you know, it's still manageable, manageable, manageable. You know, balance of payments is still workable. Remittances are coming into the country. There's confidence in the system. People are putting their money here. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a lot of Gulf support, so they're putting, they're willing to put their money here. I mean, there there was a lot of both international goodwill, but also, confidence of the Lebanese in their own system expats I think we had something like eight billion dollars coming in every year in in, in in remittances yeah so so there was a lot of that that confidence started eroding with uh, the sense that and I it accelerated I think again after 2005 mm. the sense that a where I used to be the up between let's say four groups, All of a sudden, uh, it became six or seven groups that wanted a piece of that pie. So, it's, you know, they were all getting smaller bits now. That's one. Right. Their international backers, money from uh, international backers, dried up after 2008 financial crisis, less and less money, and... It went on from there. Less and less money was coming into the country, particularly from Gulf countries, especially to these political parties. Meanwhile, the U.S.-Iran tension was also increasing. So we're having more sanctions on, uh, you know, on different entities in Lebanon. Uh, mm-hmm. More laws coming into place. Uh, the banking system being required to cooperate uh, with. American uh, laws on sanctions on money laundering, etc. Hmm. And then 2011, you have the Syrian conflict erupt, which actually brought money into the country. So a lot of Syrians so brought their money.
0: It's almost like the regional crises are not part of the story in that sense. That it's no, just, they are. Oh, oh they They're are. Very
1: much they're very much part of the story mm. in the sense that, you know, the regional the, the regional and geopolitical play, play two roles. On the one hand, um, when the Friends of Lebanon stop being the Friends of Lebanon, that stops right. quite a bit of the money flow into the country. Right. That's, and then the pressure on, in terms of sanctions, now the Caesar bill, etc. cetera, mm. also, um, you know, Makes it much easier, much much more difficult for money to flow through the system. Right. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the number of actors internally, so it's a it's a constellation. I mean, it's a, it's a coming together of both external and external and, and internal uh, uh, factors. Yeah. Internally, the number of groups that now wanted a piece of that pie uh, had grown, while that pie had shrunk. Was, was, was getting smaller and smaller.
0: Right, but at the core, uh,
1: because there weren't any, enough resources coming in.
0: But but at the core is a, is one of mismanagement, regardless. That in other words, it's, the protection pr- protective measures that were not taken have sort of brought us to where we are.
1: I mean, in technical terms, yes, a peg to you know an unreasonable peg to a uh, to a dollar at fifteen hundred uh, Lebanese lira to the dollar rate was cost.
2: Right, so, yeah. The
1: cost the country, a huge amount, mm-hmm. um, so on and so forth. So there were bad policies in place, and this is where a lot of the mismanagement came in. Right. But all of this was been dealt with. And in 2016, when we hit the, uh, uh, the brick wall and we were about to crash land, mm. then they came up with these financial engineering schemes. Um So. It would have been much easier, let's put it this way, to deal with the crisis in right. 2016 than it is today.
0: That's interesting. And today, yeah.
1: Yeah. every single you know, with every single day we lose, without what could have been done in December, is no longer feasible today. Or right. it's feasible, right. but it won't do the job anymore. Right. Every day is costing this country a huge amount, and it's setting the country back. Um, you know don't want to put a number to it, but it's setting the, back, the country back tremendously. With every day that passes, the financial and economic foundations of the country are becoming weaker, and its prospects of recovery become that much more difficult. Right. So in December, we were talking about how to avoid a decade, uh, you know, a lost decade. Now we may end up talking about how to avoid, you know, lost multiple decades. Yeah. Uh, maybe even a generation. I don't know the way things are going.
0: So in a way, this is a classic sort of analogy of kicking the can, that you just sort of, they were kicking and kicking and kicking as far as they could until they reached that wall. And
1: they're still, but they're still kicking the can. And they're That's still the kicking. worst part about it. right? Today, what is frustrating uh, and disheartening, and you know, it's, it's uh, you asked me about living in Lebanon when we started, yeah. and the sense of palpable anger we feel of a political elite and the government who are still functioning as if it's a business as usual. Yeah. The country is trash landing, people are eating from garbage cans. I mean how do you how do you how can you live normally when you see the misery around you? I saw someone today eating from a garbage can. I I felt paralyzed. I mean what what do you do in a situation like this? These are not things we're used to seeing in this country. Yeah. This is a country where social solidarity between families is is amazing. You know this, Ronnie. Where between communities is amazing. And actually, frankly, the only thing that is kept is maybe the silver lining in all of this, or the positive ray of sunshine, if I if I may call it that, has been uh, Lebanese civil society. Yeah. The yeah. coming together of civil society to, to support people in need has been amazing. Yeah. The initiatives, they're the ones who are keeping people on their feet. They're the ones who are feeding. It's not the government. It's not the politicians. They're the ones who are feeding people. They're the ones who are sending them, you know, giving money to, to, uh, get people treated. They're the ones who are making sure people have homes. They're the ones who are literally have roofs over their heads trying to find jobs, initiatives, the range of initiatives I've seen are just amazing. Um, Both from civil society in Lebanon, individuals, uh, but also expats, expats who are, you know, desperate for ways to help Lebanon and looking for ways to support the country. But this is not sustainable. You need a functioning government that steps in and takes the lead. And they're not doing that. They're still treating, you know, they they, look at the way civil service appointments took place not too long ago. (laughs) It's a joke. It's a joke. I mean, it's still, again, a business as usual approach, trying to kick the can down the road. The government is in the middle of negotiations with the IMF, and all of a sudden they're bickering over the size of the debt between government and parliament. How do you go negotiate with the IMF for a desperately needed, desperately needed injection of cash yeah. into the country? And the IMF—I mean, the issue with the IMF—it's not just the IMF itself; it's not the deal with the IMF as such. Yes, it will unlock some, some immediate—you know—basically, they have the fastest dispersal instrument for dispersing cash mm. around. Mm. I never thought I would be somebody who would be calling for IMF program in Lebanon. Here I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But the thing about the IMF is two things, actually. One is it will, it is, reforms are conditional and without reforms, this country will never stand on its feet. Right. And two, it will unlock other support. The European Union, in a conversation two weeks ago with the high representative, uh, for the European Union, Borrell, uh, um, he was very clear. I asked him; he was very clear: no support without the IMF.
0: He's going to hear this because he's a listener of the podcast, and I see—I I, I know that from from sort of his staff and his people—that he. So he's going to hear this, uh, you know. But I'm—you're pointing he has at a
1: lot of interest in this region, by the way.
0: You know, okay. All—all all that said. And you eloquently just explained how bleak things are and how incompetent the ruling regime is. You also explained that the social fabric of Lebanon is collapsing in front of your own eyes. We're seeing things that were unimaginable. Your your example is very clear, and it hits home that this is not something we're used to. It also ties into the third pillar. And that, to me, is, I mean... For me, that's the foundation of any healthy society. That's Lebanon's middle class. And I'll quote you to you one more time. The middle class is swelling the ranks of the poor, with the World Bank estimating that around 50% of Lebanese now live below the poverty line, while thousands are going hungry. Clothes, food, and fuel are becoming unaffordable as year-on-year purchasing power has been halved, with inflation reaching 90% in June price of basic goods increased by around 55% in May alone. All this represents an epic collapse with a generational impact. The conversation about the middle class, to me, is is not new. And I think that was always in the background. The post-war order, the middle class that left Lebanon, those that could afford to leave, many of them were choosing to return. And there's many Lebanese that These are not rich Lebanese that can afford to sort of take huge risks. But many took that risk. They came home. They're leaving again. The middle class that survived the civil war, what was left of it, is either leaving once again or going under and reaching the poverty level. I don't know what the statistics are. I don't know how you can measure these things today. But it seems like the middle class may be the smallest sec- the, the, the smallest sort of uh, economic class in the country. And in my mind, it should be the largest and the ro- most robust. Is there anything at this point that can be done to... I mean, it's it's so unthinkable now that the middle class will return. It... Does the middle class now depend on other pillars taking hold first so that there can be a healthy middle class later? Or is there something more immediate that can be done? Because I, I personally, and I don't want to sound too pessimistic here, I can't see a way for the middle class to survive right now, so survive in a way that that matters in terms of Lebanon's economy, stability. It, it seems to be a lost cause at this point. And you tell me if that's too bleak and whether or not there's any immediate measure that can be taken.
1: Look, To be honest with you, I think that, of course, there's a way to... Uh to not only help the middle class, but help Lebanon survive. You need to have policies in place. Today, the scale of wealth destruction and is massive. Yeah. Part of the reason why that wealth is being destroyed in this way is the lack of policy, the lack of decision making. The runaway inflation that we have right now, and we're moving into very uncharted territory, we're moving into possibly hyperinflation, has to do with the fact that there are no capital controls until now, um, has to do with the fact that uh, there is a massive fiscal monetization, i.e., um, there, you know, the state needs to spend the way the state is spending because it's bankrupt, it has no money, is they printing money. They're printing money, so the the size, the amount of Lebanese lira, and the market have grown yeah. to such an extent that it is causing uh, a, a very rapid increase in prices. The demand, I mean, the the, the expansion and the size of the Lebanese lira is also increasing demand for dollar, for a non-existent dollar.
0: Right, right.
1: Which no, so they. they Meanwhile, so this is one aspect, mm. the fact that there is no policy at that level, no policy decision has been taken. Actually, the only policy decision that has been taken this this far, and for me it is a policy decision, even if it's a de facto one, is to let the middle class and let the depositors and let the businesses take the hit. The only ones paying the price for the crisis today are ordinary depositors whose money is stuck in the bank and who are being forced to withdraw that money today in Lebanese lira, if their money is in dollar, at an official rate, at two different official rates, actually. <laughs> yeah. One is the uh, 4,000 Lebanese lira. Yeah, exactly. Or 3,900. Yeah. Which is, you have a cap, you can only withdraw depending on how much money you have, you can withdraw up to, I think, thousand or two thousand dollars a month. Mm. And then there is the anything else above that you want to spend from your money, you pay at the official rate of fifteen hundred Lebanese lira to the dollar, right? While the dollar is being sold seven thousand today, eight thousand, seven to eight thousand, yeah, it's more around eight thousand. So, people are losing. I mean, there is a de facto haircut that's happened. People don't like the word haircut, but there is a de facto massive. I, I personally
0: of... am not a big fan of haircuts for ah, ah, the ah, others. I can see
1: that. <laughs> I can see that. No, but there's a massive destruction of wealth that is happening. People are being forced. And in fact, interestingly, the, uh, the liabilities of the banks have decreased because of this. Because people are, are are withdrawing their dollar amount in Lebanese lira uh at less than favorable rate, their own liabilities literally are shrinking.
0: But does that mean that the leave,
1: leave this for a few more years and you know all the losses will have been absorbed by by people like me and you and others but, but and by the way sorry other oh, people paying hmm. the price are the businesses and i talk about this in the where i sort of hint hint at it in the when i speak about the lines of credit yes because right people people who you know lines of credit are what the bank extends to you to allow you to import goods and to get your business rolling this but is stop
0: in that sense is it almost like the policy is is permanently scarring the middle class that there's that
1: permanently destroying this country. It's not just about the middle class anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about destroying the, I mean, the, again, the, the size of wealth destruction that is happening. You're looking at a middle class, an American university professor, and I talk about their salaries
0: yeah you give a great together. great description of it, yes,
1: so just to get a sense the yep. salary all of a sudden now goes from sixty three thousand a year to eleven thousand a year, yeah, so they're making nine hundred dollars a month just at the because they're being paid in Lebanese lira. I'll use my aunt as an example. My aunt was a public uh, school teacher she taught Arabic literature for forty for i think she had a career of about thirty five or i don't know how many years years she her entire pension is in Lebanese lira. She's all of a sudden seen her income completely uh, disappear because what she could, you know, what she was able to live on in a very dignified manner no longer means much. Yeah. It's, you know, the the, the value of her money is, is evaporating before her eyes. This is someone who's retired talk about people who are about to retire you know they've built a career this was the engineer the professor the whatever who've spent a lifetime saving they have a pension they have some savings and you know they can they, they're not about to start a new career they can't start a new career yeah all of a sudden they go from being able to you know have a decent life to not being able to afford, afford, uh, afford health care. So what is happening today is, is is criminal. What is being done to this country is criminal. So you ask me about the middle class. It's not just about the middle class. I talk no. about the middle class. For me, the middle class is the professionals that Lebanon, I mean, this, this country is remarkable for its talent. And its talent that is both educated and uneducated. the educational system. I think you saw the episode was with, with the president of the American University in Beirut, but all the universities here are talking about this. Public school systems, schools yeah. are shutting down, schools yeah. are shutting down. If Lebanon loses its educational system and therefore loses its human capital, what does it have left? It's a human capital. Frankly, I, for the longest time we used to say the best export of Lebanon is its people. Absolutely. They Absolutely. go outside and they they, they, they they you know they they work their magic. So the educational system now is beginning to. I mean, if this things continue, it will collapse. And nobody wants to put a cent in 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 uh, in, in state institutions. You yeah. talk to donors, and they say, "We'll try and help as much as we can," but they don't trust state institutions anymore.
0: That that so, sort of I mean, that's I, I think a very visible consequence of what's happening, that our peers, a lot of people that we both know, do not want to invest their lives any longer in Lebanon. And the truth is, they don't want to fall from the middle class to the lower class. They don't want to live in poverty. They seek opportunities elsewhere. Just
1: that, Ronnie. I mean, I think some of it is because of that, some of it is, I mean, there are people who fought their life. To try and have yes. a decent, and all of a sudden they're seeing, yeah. you know, the people are losing hope, and yes. yet at the same time, others are not. And
2: right. this
1: is again in the sense of, I mean, I've I also see in a lot of the people who are part of the October seventeenth movement, and as you know, there are many different groups. Sure. The sense of commitment people have to this country is remarkable. You're absolutely so while right. while we're hearing about people who want to emigrate. There are others who are completely committed and younger people who are completely committed and continue to say, we do not want to emigrate. We yeah. want our country back and we want to build this country. The problem is that, you know, how do you build a country when those that are running it have no interest? I mean, they're more interested in their short term gain than in the survival of Lebanon. And what I find quite astonishing is the link between their own survival and Lebanon's survival somehow is not that clear. I'm not sure how it's not clear. But, you know, maybe if the country collapses, the po- different political leaders can, you know, make it in their own way. You know, they, they thrive in, in, in chaotic situations. but
0: I mean, it seems to be that they're the most adept at, at surviving chaos and, un- and uncertainty, and and I agree with you.
1: there you go from being a national leader to going back to being a leader of your own little neighborhood. I mean, b- bottom line. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's mind boggling, and it's it's not a lot. Take the electricity. This is not. A, this is. These are deeply political issues. These are not about uh, the technicality of it. Mm. We know. We know what needs to be done. Yeah. Why isn't it being done? It's a political decision. It's a political uh, bottleneck. The leadership today recognizes that the government. I mean, I think finally they've understood the depth of the economic crisis. The, in the first period, there was a lot of denial, yeah. and they thought that oh, somebody will come into the rescue. I mean, I was hearing this all the time. Um, now they recognize the depth of the crisis and yeah. that no one's going to come into rescue.
0: Maha, so I there w- is
1: that recognition, but they don't want to. They don't want to share in the losses. Um, they they, they they want everyone else to lose, but they don't want to share in the losses.
0: I'm going to... No, no, no. On the contrary, I, b- b- I want to tackle this. I told this. you I'll get... Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I
1: told you I get...
0: <laughs> on the contrary. <laughs> I
1: get worked up around this,
0: so. <laughs> hey, if I'm the person who makes you scream, then I'll take credit for it. And we, <laughs> I'll, I'll put like a censored, uh, you know, I'll, I'll muffle <laughs> anything that's said. No, but... You're you're touching on something that I'm curious about, and I, I didn't want to bring it up in this episode in particular. I kind of wanted to focus only on those five pillars, but I think it's important. And before we get into the fourth pillar, I just want to ask you, and you say as much as you'd like about this. I'm bringing it up largely because of the 2005 marker that you eloquently described at the start. And you tell me if I'm wrong in, in this sort of larger assessment it seems like the most valiant effort today by the people you're describing who want to stay in Lebanon, don't want to leave. They they don't want to give up on on the country. They're the same kind of people that we saw get killed. And 15 years ago, somebody you admire, someone that I admire, somebody you knew well, Samir Asir. And this ties into the fourth pillar. But before we get into that, Would you put the onus on the Civil War legacy remaining in the country? And what I mean by that is 1989, which we got into, 1989 is not a marker where violence ends. It's not like, um, what are they called, the Good Good Friday Agreement, the Good Friday Accords of Northern Ireland. In other words, that you see a dismantlement of all sub-state weapons. Or, for that matter, the Balkans, where you don't have paramilitary groups that are still sort of tolerated at least constitutionally or whatever, but they're they're gone um, Another more recent example you see Colombia looking at a post FARC scenario post weaponized FARC scenario and i'm I'm saying this in the broadest way that lebanon, the post civil war era contains with it much of the civil war now that for 15 years that included the syrian army's presence in lebanon and, and the israeli army's presence in the south more recently it's clear hezbollah remains that sort of very very important player at least when it comes to the civil war legacy in the country meaning that it's a weaponized group beyond state sovereignty would you put the burden in any way on that group's ability and i'll say this uh, carefully to preserve the worst crop of Lebanese leaders we've ever experienced. Meaning that today you're either directly or indirectly supportive of that group's mission. If you try to rebuild Lebanon the way you would want to, from a civil war to a post-war environment, civil society, state reform, building institutions that work, not the sectarian monster we live with right now. Can you imagine that? So long as there's one group that can say, well, we don't want that, we will either silence it or we will eliminate it if necessary. And instead we'll preserve what we tolerate, meaning that the the, the group that we're familiar with right now, who in a way almost, um, their, their own survivability in a sense depends on Hezbollah too. So I, I'm curious about that relationship and if if it plays out in terms of taking Lebanon out of its current impasse into something better. And again, as much as you'd like to say on this topic, I know it's a huge topic, and I know is explored in many different ways, but that relationship towards reform and a group's abilities to prevent reform.
1: Okay, it is a big question. Um, I'll say just a couple of things. Um, Hezbollah is as invested in the system mm. as everyone else. Mm. Um, they're invested in it. Uh, it is their backyard. And after 2005, they kind of took over the role that Syria used to play
2: mm-hmm.
1: in terms of managing different aspects of the country.
2: Mm.
1: So they allow you to go do your thing where, you know, it's Okay, and, and the areas that are of strategic interest, don't go anywhere near them. Right. So, yes, they do play an important role in propping up the system and maintaining its modus operandi. However, I would not want to say that they are the only obstacle. They are mm-hmm. a major obstacle. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mean, the, the, um, the, we saw this in the reaction of uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah to the October protests. The first reaction took it personally. Yes. He thought this was, uh, you know, oh, you're right to be upset. However, you know, we'll deal with it. Now you can go home. hmm um, the second one was similar So the sense of taking things personally Initially was actually For me was a bit uh, they, they, they they saw the protest somehow As uh, A challenge to their authority I think right. it was more of a challenge To the system that they were invested In protecting
2: hmm.
1: Okay So yes It is a big problem But it is not the only problem Mm, and mm. I think the other leadership is as invested in maintaining them as they are, because this is where their survival comes from. Okay. But if we take this scenario, for example, if Hezbollah decides to plug on, decides to pull the plug on Jabran Basile today, he's gone. He's gone. He's gone. I don't know whether he's gone. But then, he, yes, okay, you pull the plug. He's weakened. But then there are other repercussions because it does have. Uh, you know, in terms of the balance of power between the different communities, the you know the the, the reading of this uh, will vary, and its ripple effects will vary for the Christians for the Sunni. Mean. Sure, of course. I don't want to get into it because it becomes yeah. very complicated. Know, of course, of course. But I guess
0: okay. I guess my mm, no, but I think my 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 I, maybe I said it. I didn't say it the right way. I... Uh, if he were to somehow join in on 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 adventures in state reforms, it's a very unlikely scenario. That if he were to really sort of push hard in rebuilding Lebanon, again, unlikely scenario. I don't think we would have the Gibran Bseila that we know. He would be an irrelevant politician at best, and maybe sort of just. But why? A,
1: why would? Yeah, no, I I agree, but um, I I agree that. That's what I'm saying. They are a may- they are an obstacle mm. because because they are invested in a system right. that protects them. This system is good for them. It's a system that rallies people around sectarian identities, that polarizes individuals, that does not recognize national level movements. It's one where the balance of power is in their favor. It allows yes. them to keep their arms and maintain, you know, right. their regional agenda, while being playing, you know, their local role as part of the Lebanon political scene, etc. But
0: I, I guess, so, but taking it one step further, does the system now survive on the legacies of the civil war, whether it was the Syrian order until two thousand five, or whether it's the current situation no, we have right now?
1: Sorry, it's... The system is collapsing as a result of the legacy of the civil war.
0: Right, right, okay. It's not yeah. surviving. It's right.
1: collapsing, as a, or at least the power-sharing system is yes. still, as I said, it's it's in trouble because it's, it's completely stuck and it's mm, no longer mm. able to reproduce itself. But the state itself and state institutions are collapsing, are collapsing. under the weight Of the legacy of the right,
0: I appreciate that. I appreciate that perspective. It almost like it shows that, despite what they may want or what they may what they may need, they may not actually have that in the long run. So I I appreciate that perspective. I won't take too much more of your time. I've already sort of taken up too much of your time. I'll I'll just sort of segue into the fourth pillar, which touches on this. Uh, It's in a way, it's something that we thought. I, I thought that it was a bygone era. But it's, it's still with us. It's the issue of freedom of expression. And I, I'll quote to you to you again. Uh, a fourth pillar of the Lebanese system, namely freedoms, is also being eroded. Since independence, Lebanon has been renowned for freedom of speech and a flourishing press. And you go back in time, just like you did with Riyad Salih, By the end of the 1940s, the country was publishing 39 dailies and 137 periodicals in three languages. In its heyday, Lebanon acted as a safe haven for dissidents and refugees, boasting a cultural and intellectual life unparalleled in the region, a role it continued to play until recently, albeit much less effectively. Freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, I immediately go back to 2005. And I also remember the valiant efforts of people on the streets, and then these names that emerge and become part of the moment, one in particular, Samir Asir, and shortly after, Gibran Twaini, and despite their assassinations, protesters, poets, uh, journalists, you name it, people were not shying away. They were still pushing and pushing and pushing. And now in 2020, you have that sort of, that those interrogations that we used to know about in the early 2000s, they're happening. They may not be as abusive, They may not be as sort of intimidating per se, but they're happening. And there's that kind of oversight where you wouldn't expect it. And in particular things that, I I mean, Instagram stories and people just screaming and shouting from their personal profiles, you get called in. Or it could be a tweet where you say the wrong thing and suddenly you're sort of called in. And that form of intimidation seems to be now part of the story once again. Do you think that the Lebanese spirit, if you will, I I don't want to sound too cliche here, but that unique ability to lure in, whether it's the regionals' best writers and poets, or for that matter, Lebanese still expressing their dreams and desires against all odds, do you think that will survive this moment? Or is there really a risk? Is there a risk here that authoritarianism, especially in terms of freedom of expression, May, may destroy this sort of extremely important aspect of Lebanese society. So just, I mean, no, you see it as intact. Okay.
1: I, no, no, not intact. I see it as it will survive. Mm, mm. The, the, this is a country that the sense of innovation, I mean, entrepreneurship, freedom of expression is not just about what you say. It's about the artists. It's about yes. theater. It's about the novelists. It's about um, the innovators. It's about the engineers. It's about, it's a, there's, a, there's a mood, there's a culture, there's a sense of being able to say what you think. Yeah. And even though there is an attempt to erode it consistently, uh, as I talk about it in the piece, um, there was a documentation. I mean, now there's, I think, a group of about 14 different organizations yes. that have come together to defend uh fundamental rights, mm. even though the judiciary is being shot through and apparently is being quite compliant uh, with this clampdown uh, mm-hmm. or p- quite pliant in this clampdown uh, against uh, freedom of speech. But I don't see people complying that easily. You see, every time one one person gets pulled in, hundreds go down.
0: Right, street. that's true, yes.
1: So, the sense that, um, the sense, yeah, and the other thing I think that also works, and this is where, this is a, again, being in a, in a society that's made up of so many different communities <laughs> it means that it's very difficult you build up an authoritarian state in the way you see in other countries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, there are limits to authoritarianism um, that you don't have and this is perhaps the benefits of being in a very in living in a multi sectarian society uh, such as the one in Lebanon.
0: So so the there pl- are limits to but, but the pluralism will sort of preserve that preserve that characteristic so that the breathing space among communities in a way ensures a certain level of, of freedom? They
1: will continue. There will, there will be some freedom, but the margin has is shrinking. Yeah. There, there is a closing in of space, for mm. sure. Mm. But I think Lebanon will still... It will be imposed, impossible to shut it down completely.
2: Right, right.
1: The, the push against the shutdown... Um, there's too much of a history in this country of, this is why I went back to the 1940s. Yeah. This is the country where the Nahda, the Arab Renaissance, came out in the 19th century. Yes. So it's really also, uh, I'm not one for uh, nostalgia and, uh, you know, uh, it's cultural essentialism. But it is part of the mood of mm. what makes mm. this country what it is. So there is an attempt to close at closing space. Um, there are attempts to repress, um, to force people into silence. To, we didn't talk about refugees, for example. This is a country yeah. that's welcomed refugees in the past. It's true. And yeah. there's an attempt to, you know, all of this. But I think the pushback against it is also quite there and will continue to be there. But so it won't be as easy to shut this down and frankly, if you shut down, I mean, that's it. That's the end of Lebanon.
0: I firmly agree with you. Actually, that to me is the end of the country. I completely agree with you on that sentiment. Yes.
1: You and can't I, do it. You really cannot do it. I yeah. mean, honestly, again, this is where this multi-sectarian, uh, multi-plural you know plural country, um, I think, helps in this pushback yeah. against the, this closing in of space and, uh, Uh, but that the space is constricting definitely it's becoming you know less and less the capacity of people to speak out in certain regions in lebanon is becoming almost non-existent uh in some places so
0: right but but i mean that even even when there's that kind of violent reaction at times leads to death that the the average lebanese is willing to sort of Include that as part of the, the national trait, and I, I know I agree with you. You don't have to go be too romantic here, but it's true. It is true that Lebanon plays that role in the region, and if it doesn't play Sameer
1: that role, Samir Sir was killed on June seventh, June second, two thousand and five, October 17, twenty nineteen. Samir Asir was very much alive amongst the protesters. He was being quoted by the protesters. Absolutely. So, it's, it's hard to eradicate a legacy like this.
0: His fans continue that legacy. They're not intimidated. They stand up. So, that's what I meant in terms of the... Um, that's what makes the country special, is that despite the violent crackdown on freedom of expression, it simply doesn't work. The Lebanese have maintained that tradition. So, I'm glad you chose the word erosion. I hope it does not result in something more painful. And I agree, it's the end of Lebanon if we lose freedom of expression. I fully agree. Maha, I want to take it to the last pillar, and it's I, I like the approach you took in terms of the the financial pain we're going through, and that it may actually result, it, it may result, in the collapse of state institutions that have not been impacted directly. At least when it comes to politics and, and the usual sort of economic story we've been discussing. Now, it's got to do with the army and internal security. And the final moment I quote you to you, the Lebanese system's fifth pillar, the army and internal security forces, is also feeling the impact of the economic crisis. Like all Lebanese, military and security personnel have seen their incomes and pensions disappear. The salary of the army's commander has declined in dollar terms to around $750 a month, while that of a colonel has gone down to $300, and a soldier, $150. The personnel may be faring better than than those who have lost their jobs, but they no longer enjoy many of the benefits they previously did. In an environment of heightened tensions, economic pressure on the military and security sector will only grow. More worrisome, this is happening as crime rates have risen in recent months. I am a product of the early 1980s. I don't know what it was like to live in Lebanon in the early 1970s, but I can imagine when these institutions become weaker and when their soldiers are no longer let's say willing to fight when you have the security of the country that's sort of turning away from crises i see that as the inevitable breakdown of a country and to me april 1975 it happened for many reasons but this is one of them that the state institutions no longer operated so, and and you're careful to point that is not these have not collapsed that's the one that has not sort of sort of fallen but would you be that sort of let's say bleak in, in that if these are to sort of pay a price with what we're going through that we may end up in a familiar situation where 1975 returns where you have chaos on the streets an ungovernable situation and it's it's perhaps a matter of years before Lebanon, is put back together. And I, I wanna, I'm want i trying to see the conclusion of that scenario.
1: A return to 1975 in the sense of a civil conflict, I don't see that happening now. Mm, mm. I don't see that happening because there is no external interest. To have a civil war, somebody has to fund the conflict. Right. Yeah. Somebody has to provide money to militia, create militias, fund militias. There's only one group that's armed to the teeth. Right. They've got all the battle experience needed, yeah. and the rest are not. So I don't see a scenario of a civil conflict in the way the 19, 1975
2: was. Mm.
1: What I'm concerned about today is we are seeing an increase in violence. Yeah. We're seeing different trends when it comes to violence. We're looking at writing, We're looking at uh, uh, sectarian clashes along traditional fault lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at a spike in, in crime, uh, but also so uh, a spike in crime. And one statistic that came out recently talked about uh, murder rates increasing, unfortunately, by about 50% for the wow. same period. Yeah. We're talking about an increase in car theft, etc., yeah. This is this is beyond the people going into pharmacies holding up pharmacies for in return for diapers and baby milk. This is much more yes. serious obviously. Yeah. So what I see is that this is the security sector, uh, the whether it's the army or even the internal security forces, which I don't talk about in the piece. Um, that is they themselves are ordinary Lebanese citizens. They're under tremendous strain. Yeah. They're being asked to put their own lives uh, on the line uh, in return for a lot of insecurity. Right. And if that pillar collapses, then what we're going to look at is more gang-style war conflict, turf mm. uh, mm. battles. Mm um the back to the mil- mood of the 19th you know 75 onwards or the civil war era where you had different militias controlling dif- different neighborhoods right. within the same city and crossing from one neighborhood to the other becomes a chore yeah or a challenge so that's so not that's not necessarily
0: fighting see. it's more just division less less to do with
1: it's fragmentation it's fragmentation turf wars yeah. this is where you have you know uh, 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 warlords for rise uh, with power vacuums uh, yeah. i mean the the developments become very Uh, non-linear, it's hard to predict what will emerge where Right. but when there are, if there are small power vacuums uh, in areas, for example in northern Lebanon or in other parts of the country, you will see new things emerge people will step in to fill in in these vacuums, whether whether it's a local thug or someone willing to pay a few dollars to create their own little private militia or whatever, I mean Right. So we may see more and more of this, unfortunately. And this is the part that is very worrisome. And there are examples in countries that are not like there. Take Venezuela, for example. Venezuela, it's, it's gang wars. It's, uh, I mean, the rates of crime there are huge. And mm. the city, country, is run by rival gangs. Uh, because they, tr- they thrive in situations of chaos.
2: Mm. Mm. Uh, mm.
1: And they, they prey on people's vulnerabilities. People in Lebanon are becoming incredibly vulnerable. Um, they're becoming, their lives are very precarious. Uh, we, You mentioned the figure that I talk about, which is the World Bank estimating 50% of the Lebanese population fallen before, below the poverty line. Yeah. We're talking about 2 million people yeah. uh, for an average population of 4.2. And we're not talking about refugees. This country is a host to around a million Syrian refugees who are also right. facing very circumstances so this is this is huge uh, and no amount of support from civil society is going to be able to sustainably take care and support these people um, the humanitarian the international community is now coming in with humanitarian support for the Lebanese but these are all short-term measures it's putting band-aids on a gaping wound yeah uh, that's not the way you deal with it So, this is, unfortunately, anyway, if things continue the way they they are, uh, again, I don't see the security institutions collapsing tomorrow, far from it. I think there's a lot of attempts, particularly when it comes to the army, to keep things together. Uh, But there needs to be a lot more leadership. I don't think they're ready for what's coming. They're just not ready for what's coming.
0: You know, Maha, after... So I, I want to say a few things here. First, I, I think this is the longest episode I've ever recorded, and it reminds me—no, but this is—that's that's a that's a good thing. It's a good mm-hmm. thing. Uh, it's not because of the technical glitches or uh, the sort of the fun stuff that we're all <laughs> the fun in quotes. Uh, it's because you're very patient and you let me ask a lot of challenging questions, and you sort of you paint a picture that's simple to understand but very layered and complex at the same time and it reminds me of conversations I used to have with my father and for that reason it's an honor for me to even ask you these questions and get your perspective Um, before we started recording this would have never occurred to me had we not had this conversation that you are the photographer (laughs) behind one of my favorite photos of my father I never knew this I have the photo I look at it regularly I never knew it was your photo, and it's uh, it's from a happier sort of it's a it's a happy moment that you captured where he's sort of in his element, and I can see him kind of pontificating with people, <laughs> and he's wearing that sort of funny hot, uh, top hat.
1: He, 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 he just he, he he, <laughs> Yeah,
0: he looks like he's happy, and it's a lovely photo, and and you caught him at the right moment. I'd just like to wrap it up with maybe, if you can. You know many people that were eliminated for sharing similar uh, passions, wanting a better country, and you're still committed to Lebanon. I mean, you're not leaving. I assume you're you're staying put. And and many people that we know, even if they are leaving, they're really they're leaving reluctantly. They're not sort of they're not leaving because they want to. They're leaving because in many ways they have to. That said, that said. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? And I'm I guess what I'm asking is things look so bleak right now. And things look so pessimistic. You still have protesters on the street, but you also have a regime that's very stubborn and unwilling to reform. You have a country that seems to be on the verge of collapse. Your your article in a way explains it, and these are the foundations that are falling is there any sort of hope in your mind? And if you can, if if, if you see fit, maybe even a conversation you had with my father that may echo that sentiment or just sort of, a, I don't know, fighting for the country against all odds. Do you see a, sort of a better future for Lebanon?
1: I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Hmm. Uh, and I think this is what, brought your father back to Lebanon and kept him in Lebanon mm. uh, in, in the most dangerous of times uh, and his loss frankly is irreplaceable not only for the family and his friends but for the country uh, I, I I'm, I'm not gonna go more into into this but uh, his passion and belief in this country was something that um, always struck me. Mm. Uh, and his capacity to read through uh, and link, you know, bring people together and link different dots that were not necessarily visible to, to others. Right. Um Lebanon today stands at a very critical juncture. And it is a, you know, I describe it. I mean, I don't say these words, but it is it is collapsing. And it is an epic collapse. But I look around me and I see the people who are staying, the people who want to stay, and the people who are still fighting for Lebanon. The people who are outside Lebanon and are still fighting for Lebanon. Yeah. And I think this is a country worth fighting for. Yeah. So... Do I see any hope? Yes. Is it an incredibly difficult struggle? Double yes. (laughs) Um, Are are there people still here who believe in this country and want to make a difference? Absolutely. Uh, Will they be? You know, will? Is there a chance to save it? Absolutely. Uh, Will we all be able to? I don't know. I really don't know. Because, to be realistic, uh, there are today things that the Lebanese can do, but there is a lot also that is outside their control. Right. When we talk about geopolitical challenges. Yeah. I think a lot of what Lebanon is dealing with will only happen through a regional political settlement, not the internal stuff. The internal stuff is in the hands of Lebanese politicians, Mm. that's where they're being criminal, because there's a lot they can do. However, the broader uh, pact that ended the civil conflict in Lebanon, there's a a need for another regional pact today um, that your father was trying to work on when he was killed. Um, There is a need for, for that kind of a broader regional pact today because there's no way Lebanon will be able to emerge from this intact without a broader kind of geopolitical and regional guarantee.
0: Yeah. So both seem to be the stories of, of our times. I mean, that's uh, these are the two struggles, and they dance with each other over the years. People are fighting both battles and... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I you know, it's a very good way of, of putting it, that uh, there's a lot of hope and aspiration, and there's also a very harsh reality. You're very kind with uh, explaining to me many things that I'm curious about, going over your piece as well. All this will be linked up to the to the episode. And for bringing my father back to life, in a way, through, through your own eyes. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I don't know what else to say other than, thank you so much. No,
1: no, it's been a pleasure Ronnie, really. It's uh, it, 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 it has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you I'm a big fan of your podcast and uh, it's been fun <laughs> it's been a fun evening
0: we'll do this again we'll, we'll catch it's up where right. we left off thank you
1: absolutely absolutely
0: thanks for listening and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal all links are in the details box below Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.